Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Peyton Jones. Welcome to Hardcore Church Planning. And I am here today with a guest, an old friend who actually was one of the very first interviews that we ever did on this show. Gosh, way back in 2013. His name is Jay Werner Wallace. He is the author of multiple books, uh, including Cold Case Christianity and, uh, Forensic Faith. And hey, Jay, Jim, whatever you want me to call, call you on this, Mr. Wallace. Uh, because you are a former detective, so uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. You know, I, it, of course, it's Jim, uh, and I use that name, Jay Warner, because Jim Wallace from Sojourners. You know, if you if you are doing a radio show and you say you're about to introduce Jim Wallace, and then this knucklehead comes on, you probably feel like you didn't get your money's worth. So I wanted to make sure people knew up front that that I was not that Jim Wallace from Sojourners. So that's why I used the pen name. But yeah, good to be with you. And I do remember that first um, uh, interview we did way back when. I was grateful that you uh, took the time to interview me for that podcast. So really good to be with you again. Yeah, likewise. And you know, what was really cool is that, you know, my, my co-host in the, in the early days, he's still my co-host on the other podcast. Uh, he was on the board of apologetics.com. That's and right. When he got involved in church planting, uh, he really was like, Hey man, we got to have people that talk about apologetics because church planners are in the trenches regularly. They don't spend most of their time with church people, they're spending most of their time with people in the community that are raising these questions. And he could really see that intersection between apologetics and church planning. So it, it's really cool to have you back on multiple levels. Well, and that's why I wanted to do this kind of hybrid uh, podcast. We're going to cross post this as both of our podcasts this week. And I'm glad to do it because I think that that is something I, I felt the same way, right? I, my background was I was in a huge church here in Southern California on the children's uh, staff. And then I went to the youth staff of a smaller church. And then I eventually a church planted a, a cell church. It was a Southern Baptist church plant, but it was a, just a, a, a group in my own home of about 50. And we did that for six years. And then I wrote that book and everything kind of changed for us. But but I can tell you that I, I have a heart of a church planner as well. I, I think I understand the struggle and and, I, and, the, and the blessings are involved in that. And so I really was looking forward to this opportunity to talk to my audience about evangelism. Um, which is sometimes can get lost, right? Why do we even do apologetics? Is it just for the sake of, of, of demonstrating that we can make an argument and we can, you know, we can we're facile with the with the evidence? No, it's for the purpose of a, an ultimate goal, which is to share Christ. And really, what, why do we tr- plant churches? Is it just so we can have a nice uh, building that we can say we achieved our goals and individually as pastors, or is the real goal? to reach, as you say in your new book, reach the unreached. So I'm really grateful that we get a chance here to talk about the intersection of your new book, Reaching the Unreached, and and my new book, uh, Forensic Faith. So let me just jump off first. Is that okay, Peyton? Yeah, and I'll that's ask cool. you a couple and, of questions. And so, you know, as, as you guys that normally listen, now this is cool because uh, Jim also has his own 
podcast. So what's really cool is we're going to interview each other. So this is going to be this is going to be a first time deal, but really cool. So all right, shoot. Yeah, say that to is, a this is good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. By the way, I, you know, I've, I said this to you probably once before, but um, you have a voice that is like a radio voice, right? I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm jealous already. You have this rather te- a texture to your voice that I just want you to come in and do all the bumpers for me now from now on, okay? So I, that people can hear your voice because I feel like you have a radio voice. But anyway, let's jump to your book for a second, Reaching the Unreached, Becoming Raiders of the Lost Art. I, I've, I have pointed my uh, publishers to the cover artwork on your book uh, repeatedly in the last two weeks to show uh, what I think is a very effective, just the cover alone is worth. So if if you don't even care about church planning, just go out and get reaching the unreached. So you can put that, you can frame it uh, and put it in a a frame and hang it on your wall, because I think that cover is uh, worth the price of admission. But, but what I loved about your, your book was some simple things, right? Like, first of all, you, 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 I think you, you've narrowed in on, on what it is, that at the heart of those of us who think about church planting, I, I don't know. You tell me: is it is it? Are there times when church planners, because it's such a hard thing to do, right? And the structure and, and facilities and staff, and, and after a while, I, I would imagine that that the, the, the concerns about structure and and about um, methodology um, can start to overshadow. And, and kind of lose sight of what it is we're here to do as church planners to begin with. Am I wrong? No, absolutely. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of their focus on launching a Sunday service or an event rather mm-hmm. than what you really read about in the book of Acts, which is, you know, a, a bunch of people engaging the community around them. And, and I found when I went into ministry, you know, it's kind of the Indiana Jones theme. Like it's got the cover you mentioned has Indiana right. Jones's fedora on it. And what yep. I, what I kind of say is, look, you know, we've made ministry into what you briefly see, uh, Indiana Jones doing in the first film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where he's in the Princeton halls with the bow tie and the spectacles. And, and it's always kind of strange when you watch that movie because you go, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You know, we, we just saw the scene where you're running from boulders, dodging yeah. snakes and swinging across vines and cracking a whip. That's who you are. And I think as you read the book of Acts, the, the book really kind of teases the question of why does what I do look nothing like the book of Acts? And, and, and I think for church planners, it, it can do and it should do. And, and when I sold it to Zondervan, I remember kind of telling him all the crazy stuff we've done over the years, church planning in Europe and inner city Long Beach and uh, multiplying churches. And and I mentioned at one point, now, look, I'm not that guy. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, OK, I tell you all these things and you're going to you're going to misunderstand and think I'm like some legend like Indiana Jones. But you have to understand there was a journey where I sat in my study, surrounded by books, drinking coffee, thinking that was ministry. And as long as I preached good on the Sunday event, I was good. But God took me on a journey, much like when Gandalf knocks on Bilbo's door and says, hey, you know, you want to go on an adventure? And most of us are like, no. <laughs> you know, Bilbo says, adventures are terrible things, you know, make you late for dinner. And he slams yeah. the door in Gandalf's face. And 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 what God started doing, and part of the journey that I unfolded on the phone, the publisher said, that's what people need to hear. And in fact, my ministry over the years has been to plant like the Apostle Paul, raise up leaders and move on. And so if you look at Paul, Mm. on average, he was three to four months in each town planting. So his first thing was, hey, I'm going to be the, it wasn't, hey, I'm going to be the rock star. I'm going to roll out this Sunday event. 
His deal was, how do I quickly raise others up, not just leaders, but how do I mobilize the average everyday believer to engage their community with the gospel so that I can blow the heck out of Dodge in three to four months and see their gifts activated. And so it becomes body ministry, becomes something very organic. And, you know, for me, that's what I do is I plant and move on. So really the book is more a book about mobilizing people. And I've got this theory in it that when people get awakened in their gifts, evangelism naturally happens. So it's not even, I'm going to teach you how to, you know, cold call someone with the gospel, or I'm going to teach you how to open a conversation. What I'm looking at is what are your gifts and how can, you know, kind of to coin the the phrase of Jesus, the master has need of your donkey. You know, there, there might be something you do and apologetics is just naturally going to lend itself to that. So, and, and turning the tables now on you, um, what I love is, okay, so that's a different approach. What I love about you, what sets you apart, Jim, is your background. Tell, tell us a little bit about your, your background, how that influenced the way that you approach apologetics, particularly cold case Christianity. And then I love how this next book builds on that by saying there's a set of skills that need to be developed. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, I, I, yeah. So I was, I was kind of like you in this, well, in the sense, well, because you said something powerful, um, and I'll get back to that in a minute about how, it, what, what is it, at some point, what we're doing? Does it look anything like what we were reading in, in in the Book of Acts? Does it look anything like? And I think that's that's absolutely uh, important to me. I was not raised in the church. I was, uh, I came at it as a, as a skeptic. I was thirty five, um, had no experience on church staffs, of course, no experience even attending church. No idea. Uh, it was not. There was not a set of, of traditions or experiences from my youth that I would then lean on as I began, as I became a Christian, and as I began to think about leadership within the church, and then about how to plant churches. I, I just, I was just, that wasn't who I was. I was a detective when I first began to look at the Gospels, and I started to investigate them using the skill set that I had in place as a detective, and that was my entire. That's how I became a Christian. I became a Christian on the basis of. Of, of really imp- pushing and employing uh, these principles uh, that I, I found to be persuasive for me uh, as an investigator. You know, how do you determine that an eyewitness is reliable? How do you determine something that occurred in the past when you don't have access anymore to eyewitnesses to interview them presently, or you don't even have access to the people who wrote reports? I'm working cold case murders. So these I have reports sometimes that are written by, by people who are no longer available to me. They've passed away. Uh, the witnesses are now passed away. So I've got to determine what happened in the past without any access to either the writer or the person he's writing about. Well, that's kind of what we're doing with the Gospels, right? But the whole point was, for me was I needed to have my objections answered before I could even um, take a step. The God, I, I was my own worst enemy. Between me and the Gospel were a set of, of, of very uh, uh, base nature kind of driven things. I didn't want this to be true for many reasons. And I, I either uh, had legitimate questions, legitimate objections, or, and also had constructed some, some, some false objections that really uh, allowed me to, to, to stay away. And I needed somebody to be able to address those um, and, and show me the error in my thinking. Of course, I never denied that what had to happen first is that God had to remove the enmity that I had toward God before I would even be in a position where I would entertain an answer to my questions. And of course, God did that. And then I did need to have those questions answered. And and so so you said something earlier. You said 
you know, what is the similarity between what we're doing and, and what you, you see in the book of, I always, always say this, uh, having no background in Christianity, having no idea how churches are organized or why they do an order of service or a liturgy the way they do and why they, uh, you know, all I had was a, a, a document called the New Testament that I was reading forensically and parsing it out word by word. And I was watching uh, the, the activity of the first century church in the book of Acts and asking myself this question. If I was an alien who was um, coming in to visit planet Earth and I had a staff, a chief of staff who said, OK, boss, we're getting close to Earth and we're passing the moon now and we're going to be at Earth in about a day. So you need to understand that, that in America, at least about 70 percent of these folks are, are, are what they call Christians. And I, as an alien, never having visited Earth, said, well, really? OK, well, what are they like? Well, I've got the, their manual here. Let me give it to you. It's the New Testament, uh, Holy Bible, the New Testament. Go ahead and read through the New Testament. As an alien, if I was to read through the New Testament and then imagine in my head what I'm about to encounter in terms of Christians and the way they meet, the way they kind of view the world, the way they interact with the world. And all I had to go on was the New Testament and the book of Acts. Would I be surprised by what I find when I finally got here? I think I would. I think if I didn't have anything, didn't know anything about the traditions that have developed in the last 2000 years and all I had was the base manual, I don't think I would recognize what we see sometimes in Christendom as having much to do at all with yeah. what we read about in the book of Acts. Right. And so as a guy who was in the church, as, a, as, a, as somebody who had no uh, interaction with the church, I was often surprised by this stuff that I found. Mm. And when I decided to plant and to make a move, I, I was gonna, I said, look, regardless, and by the way, it was still hard because by that time I was a Christian, maybe, I don't know, uh, 10 years or eight years or something. And so, and so I had been in the church serving on church staff for probably six or seven of those years. And, and um, honestly, um, I was deeply impacted by my, my traditions that I had developed over the last seven or eight years. So at the first couple of, of, of years as a, as a house churcher, I was just doing, I wasn't, we weren't really a house church. We were just a church that was meeting in a house. For the most part, our attitude about what we did and how we did it was deeply impacted by my church experience now. And I had to strip that back out and return to what I was seeing in the book of Acts to, to, to have the kind of vibrant family life and, and involvement in my community that I wanted to have because I had already in just six or seven years been impacted by the traditions of the churches where I served. Mm. So, so, and of course, I returned along the way to a deep appreciation for expressing the evidence, the good reason for why this is true. If you look at the book of Acts, you'll see that, that you don't see evangelism in the form of some really good techniques we see presently, like uh, Way of the Master, for example. Uh, are you, uh, if you were stolen, well, you're a thief. If you ever lie, well, you're a liar. Showing people their need for the gospel and then presenting the gospel is a very valid way to do this. I get that. But that's not what they did in the first century in the book of Acts. They repeatedly said the Old Testament predicted X, and then we saw it as eyewitness, direct evidence. We saw this come to be with our own eyes, and they testified as witnesses to the resurrection repeatedly. And so I knew that I wanted to take an approach that was highly evidential. That's why I wrote Forensic Faith, really in an effort to say, look, 
Uh, we sometimes make a case as apologists, make a case for Christianity or a case for God's existence. Now I wanted to make a case for why you ought to make a case, because for the most part, Christians um, don't necessarily even know they should do that. That's yeah. why I loved your book, uh, Reaching the Unreached. There's, you know, what I like about you is that you're able to kind of contextualize uh, things in a way that I can catch them. You're a good translator, right, of ideas. And the the very first chapter is is just awesome. It's it's called a butt kicking is a terrible thing to waste. I just like saying butt kicking, so I just wanted to you know, <laughs> say that over and over again. But a butt kicking is a terrible thing to waste because I, I I can sympathize with what you're what you say in this chapter. But I want my listeners at least to kind of get off the ground fast with with why because I I think in the end I, I want people who are involved and are interested in Christian case making apologetics to to start to take a, a turn. A yeah. turn toward um, toward evangelism, toward toward realizing that we're not. This is not an academic adventure, like you were saying with Indiana Jones, right? It's just to stay in the room, just study your apologetics, study either the case. No, in the in the end, if the goal is not to, to have that whip in your hand and to enter into the archaeological realm where you're you know you're fighting bad guys and yeah. and uh, running for your life. Uh, then we're doing it for nothing. So talk about uh, that first. Yeah. Just, just I want people to kind of get the the the, the passion I see in that first chapter. Yeah, you know one one of the things that you mentioned there, really to build on that. You know, I'm I'm really married to the first century, kind of like you. It's like, you know, and in the book, really, I think if you if you splice me open and and look at my DNA, it's going to be first century. I'm fascinated. I know they had their problems. I know we can romanticize it. They create a lot of heresy as well as a lot of wonderful memories we have in the book of Acts. Yeah. You know, they had problems, but they went so fast. I mean, you know, they turned the world upside down rapidly through really engaging everyday uh, believers and, and, and empowering them and releasing them in their gifts. And what, what you're saying about testimony is, is so powerful, building this case, because Again, like when I'm reading Acts, I see that Paul uh, shares his testimony. When Luke is sharing the testimony, he doesn't say refer back to, you know, chapter nine or refer back. Yeah. To, he writes <laughs> it out in full three times. You know, Paul's telling Agrippa and he spends almost a whole chapter showing writing out that testimony again. So when the Holy Spirit repeats things three times, um, it's a big deal. And so in this book. Um, you know, reaching and then reach, it's, it's basically a call to return. So the butt kicking is that we're getting as a church right now. We're doing so much wrong. We're, we do a lot right. But when it comes to engaging, we're making the wrong stands at the wrong time at the wrong place. Um, the gospel's getting buried. Um, we're, we're, you know, we might opt to win a political battle. But lose the gospel battle, you know, um, lose the opportunity to engage people in conversation. And, and as I've planted churches, um, I'm conservative theologically, but my approach has changed. Like, for example, um, <laughs> I've done open mic nights in gay coffee houses. I mean, I don't just mm -hmm. talk about gay people. I go talk to gay people. You know, I do go talk to people from the LGBT community because that, that's where I see the power of God working. The gospel is the same and every heart's need for the gospel is the same. And I'm watching people come to faith. And in fact, I've got a, a chapter, um, where I, it basically breaks down Acts 1, uh, 8 
and and it ends with Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And the 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 Samaria chapter is about the untouchables, the people that the church doesn't want to deal with, right? That's right. The Samaritans. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I talk about is, well, how would you approach them? How would you reach the unreached? That, that's just one chapter. The whole book isn't yeah. about, you know, it's called Reaching the Unreached because there's so many people out there, and that's the key. We talk about the butt kicking. The thing that the early church was really good at was engaging people where they were at, not waiting for them to be where we wanted them to be, but going to them where they were. And so when I'm reading Acts and the Gospels, it's all happening outside, you know? So a a lot of my ministry had to change, and it it was forced to change in Europe, which, of course, is so much further down the path of post-Christianity and post-modernity than America. Um, Like, for example, C.S. Lewis, um, he's got a real... He's always been cool to like the academics and, you know, the professors and people that were literary. But now we're starting to see he's really made his way in the last, I would say, 10 years into the average believer's hands um, yep. where there's a revival. <clears throat> the reason why is our culture has now caught up to 1950s, 1940s Britain, Great Britain, when he was <laughs> writing this stuff. And so I, I, I kind of make the parallel that, look, we're going where Europe is, so we need to get ahead of the curve you know, and, and discover what we, how we need to engage our culture before it's too late. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, I start a church out of a Starbucks accidentally. All my best discoveries of engaging culture, by the way, were done on accident. You know, when Paul, uh, persecutes and lays a smack down on Jerusalem, uh, the believers spread out. Average everyday believers, no leaders to speak of. I, I believe in leadership, but my point is believers are activating their gifts. Average everyday, you know, blue collar Joes going up to, to Antioch and just witnessing Jesus to people, having those conversations. And a church started and the disciples said, Hey, we got to. So the accidental things, kind of like, uh, remember Bob Ross on the, on the PBS channel, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Happy accidents. You know, it's, that's right. It's like so much of, of evangelism is just taking that step out in faith, being who you are. And, and that's one of the keys that I want people to, to realize is that, um, it's, it's okay to be you. You don't got to be like the guy that drops the, the track in the phone booth. Um, you, you, you can, you can be who you are, have your gifts awakened. You've got your own story to tell and, and kind of like, um, what you're saying. When, when we begin to do that, we'll start to reverse the butt kicking, right? The early, <laughs> we're getting our butt kicked. The early church was kicking butt. And, and so I'm always looking back to go, what were they doing? And how can we unpack that today? What is it we have lost? And that, that's really kind of the heart of the book. Yeah. You know, I tell you something about that. You, 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 um, you made a point that uh, as I look at this, um, uh, and the forensic faith, this book that I just finished writing, I, I talk about it in terms of, you, you keep on saying things about getting out, you know, get, getting out of that room, getting out of the, the box, getting and, and I always say that if, if, if we could handle every call as a police officer by just handling it over the phone, you know, they call in dispatch and you just handle it over the phone. Well, then you would never uh, train to get ready to to do anything because you think you're going to be able to handle everything over the phone. You don't need to, to even learn how to just half the skill set that we have as detectives or as, as officers. You would even need to learn because if you have no point in deploying, there's no point in training. And I think we got to a point, at least I did, where I thought, well, look, are we, 
how much of this is just inwardly focused on what we do and how much of this is really outwardly focused. And the reason why we aren't really preparing ourselves to do anything outwardly is because we have really have no intention of, of, of moving in that direction to begin with. And as long as we have no intention of leaving the room, of leaving the building, then there's no point in training. So, so I, I needed, I, I, I decided that part of what this training process has to be is that we've got to decide as church leaders. Yeah. Um, to 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 provide the opportunities outside the box, outside the room, because if we just say, hey, we're going to prepare you in the room to do life outside the room, but we don't ever make that a part of our calendar. Yeah. As as church leaders, then good luck with that. Half your more than half your congregation is going to say that's great, but they're not going to carve time for it. Yeah, and in the end, what you right and what you did, which in other words, if we're going to say we're going to equip you and release you to 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 utilize the gifts that you that God has given you. Well, I think we have to take first steps with those people. I think you don't just say, hey, you know, son, I, I, here's the mechanics of how to ride a bike and 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 uh, yeah. the bike's outside. Just go outside and, 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 and get at it. Well, your, your kids may go out and ride the bike or they may not. Uh, yeah. Instead, we've got to go out with them and, and get on our bike and ride alongside them and show them what that bike riding looks like. And maybe even have to hold on their bike for a season and push them off or whatever. But but we don't just um, talk academically about the bike and, and say and point to the bike. We have got to get out there and say, well, no, today we're going to go out and ride that bike. Yeah, that, and, that's and so, key. That's key. And that key. was one of the things that that you know, kind of like I said, it redefined everything. Was I would take people with me, and I I think of how Paul trained, and it must have been the same. And I love like so you've got in forensic faith, you've got five steps towards preparing yourself to protect and serve. As a first responder. Now, you won't know this, but I was a firefighter for almost four years. So um, wow. in, in my many jobs as an overseas church planner in Great Britain, I was a firefighter. Um, I would love to hear um, you unpack that just a little bit because I love that language. I think we're we're kind of talking around the, 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 the same tree here. Well, you know, recently there was the uh, the Benedict option. Did you see that book come out? A couple of okay, great. So there was some uh, kind of a firestorm of response, and and people half who supported it, half who said, "Well, there's a better way to do this." This idea that how do we? And really, the issue that was being discussed there is how do we um, get in the world but not be of the world? I mean, how can we best interact with culture? And and one of the I think the claims that was made there is that it's time for us. To be to kind of not retreat at all, but to understand the value of of otherness, of being separate from culture, to yes. prepare ourselves to interact with culture. And I can tell you that that's what first responders have to do, right? We we, we are we are going to be otherly in the sense that we're going to be wearing uniforms that identify us as first responders. We we have different sets of rules in terms of we can throw on our lights and siren and we can, you know, break some some traffic laws when need be. Uh, so there are there's a different set we are training specifically. So there's a sense in which we are are separated from culture. We should have a higher standard and, and and when law enforcement breaks what people recognize should be a higher standard they're going to get upset well why because they expect you to do things at a higher level and when we don't we ought to be spanked even more right so i get all that so there's a sense in which we are are held outside differently yet we are to do what we are training constantly to to engage culture because our entire job is going to be spent engaging culture. So here we are. We're, we're trying to balance this this otherly aspect of us that we're not of the world, but we're doing this the purpose of being in the world at a different level. So so I think to me that that idea of what first responders do, what we have to do, 
uh, is really all about engaging. Our job is to go out every day and engage a broken world full of challenges and to help people fix those challenges. And so there's some things we can learn from first responders, I think, that we could employ as Christians. And probably the biggest thing is a sense of duty is what does that even look like? What is our our duty to, you know, and I think that part of it is going to have to be to answer people's questions. Um, and I don't, that don't mean necessarily strictly apologetics questions, but even their theological questions about the nature of the gospel and, 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 and to help them understand why the views they hold in culture are, are, are harmful to them are, are because they're not true. Uh, anytime we move away from a worldview that has truth, that is grounded in truth, there will be some destruction, right? Because the further you get away from truth, the more destructive the ideas are. And so if we, if we believe our worldview as Christians is true, we're not on a mission to, to, uh, to, to convince others just for the sake of convincing them. We, we're on a rescue mission because the, the honesty of it is, is that the other worldviews are not true and therefore they're harmful. And so what we want to do is to help people see that. It's kind of like, you know, if you're drowning and don't know you're drowning, I can throw you a life preserver, but you're not even going to grab on because you don't even know you're drowning. So we have to first be able to illustrate what is so harmful about other views. And we have to do that in a way. Again, I'm not going to club somebody into my worldview. I have to draw them and woo them into my worldview on the basis of something that's both intellectually, emotionally, and and, and physically attractive. Yeah. I mean, you have to see that this worldview actually produces beauty, produces goodness. And if they don't see that, um, I'm not going to be able to woo them toward it. So, so to, for me, making the case, mm. uh, it began, but I, 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 I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the only problem I have with all of it in Christendom right now is that if you ask Christians, why are you a Christian? The answers you get are not great. You will get the same three answers over and over and over. As church planners, we have to be aware of this. Yeah. The answers most Christians give are, I was raised in the church, or I've had some experience that demonstrated for me Christianity is true, or Jesus changed me. It's kind of another experiential answer, right? Mm-hmm. These are the most people in the church. I, I, have, I dare say 80, 90% of Christians will have one of those three answers, and I'll bet you 50% of them are the, the answer that I was raised in the church. Now, I want you to think about those three answers. Um, even as we, as we ex, uh, expose people to the, to the gospel, in the end, well, okay, so why did you think the gospel was true? Most would say, if they haven't been raised in the church, well, I had an experience that confirmed for me this was true. And I know in my own heart, given what God has done in my life, that this is true. Well, I have, I've got all atheists in my family, with the exception of my stepmother and six brothers and sisters that were all raised Mormon. If you ask them, why is Mormonism true? They're going to say the exact same thing. They're going to say they were either raised in the church or they had an experience that demonstrated for them that Joseph Smith's a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true. Mm. Now, look, if their answers sound like our answers, something's wrong because, you know, that's not true. Yeah. And, and so our answers need to, now as, as church planters, we have to help people in to come into our worldview to embrace what was true. In a way that's different than every every group can say that. If you're a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a, a Mormon, you all, everyone says that I was either raised this way or I had some experience that demonstrated this was true. My life is different as a result of being in this system. Right. Okay, that that doesn't make it true though. So so we have to be able to be careful about how we uh, actually reach the lost 
in that sense. We don't want them in the end to hold to this truth claim. Right. We don't want them to have a blind faith or an unreasonable faith. We want them to have a forensic faith in the sense that mm. it's at least grounded in something that's true, even though I can't answer every question for you, even though, of course, there's going to be unanswered questions. Every worldview has unanswered questions. There will be a step of trust yep. across a gap of information, no matter what worldview you hold mm. to. We might call that faith, no problem, but it's not unguided. It's not undirected. It's at the end of a good a set of evidences that point us in the right direction. That's then important. we take that step. That's an important distinction. That's so. super important. And I love that you bring that up because I've got a good friend who's an atheist who knows Christianity very well and will always point out, hey, you know, at some stage there has to be faith. And I think he gets it. But also what you're bringing out there is is so crucial that there is evidence you know, and that, and that that needs to be weighed, that it's not a blind leap of faith. And right. thanks for, thanks for really bringing that distinction into focus. It's funny. Well, let me, let yeah. me ask you this, Peyton. I know we're, I don't want to run out of time before I ask this important question of you, because there's so many books out there that are on evangelism, right? And this is different. Um, but, but I, I always say that, 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 um, you know, writing a book is pretty easy and anyone can write a book. All right. I'll just be honest with you. If you, if you, but, but getting the book read, that is another issue altogether. I spend more time trying to get books read than I ever did trying to write them because yeah. in the end, I didn't write, no one writes a book they want no one to read. No one right. writes a song they want no one to listen to. No one writes, uh, produces a movie they want no one to watch. I mean, there's a reason why you wrote this. You wrote this because you wanted people to read it. Now I want to ask you, what is the end goal? What, why, what is it that drove you? You said, Hey, there's a lot. I could point people to other resources. Yeah. But, but instead I decided to write this resource. Yeah. You know what? Probably the thing, and I've, I've held back on, uh, mentioning this is a lot of it has to do with our whole approach. We've got like a silver bullet approach right now to Christianity. And, you know, when I, when I talk about the butt kicking is a terrible thing to waste, Jesus gives like a remedy and a reversal for it. And it's basically him. And it's like everything else. Everything ought to point back to him. And it's not just a quick, Hey, it's Jesus, everybody. You know, a couple sentences, close the book. We're done. There's a lot more to unpack there because the thing that Dr. Luke wants you to know is look, this is, there is a power there. There is the power of the Holy Spirit in each individual believer. Now, uh, ironically, the thing that Luke bends over backwards to let you know is, look, you can't do this. Even Jesus tells the disciples, um, hey, go, but wait. And I don't believe they were afraid and scared and hiding because you don't tell people to wait when they're ready to go, right? They were ready right. to go. And Jesus holds them back and says, I know you've spent three years from me, 24-7 being discipled. I don't care what seminary you go to. I don't care what PhD you hold. You are not as prepared as those 12 were after three years doing miracles and hands-on and all that stuff with Jesus. I mean, I've never seen the dead race. Those guys did, right? So yeah. you're nowhere near as prepared as them. And yet Jesus says, guys, you can't do this on your own. I believe that so much of what we're being told today is, hey, here's a way to do it better on your own. And that, that all of our, you know, our business savvy and our success. And, you know, my partner, uh, is a marketer. And so I believe in marketing, but not when it's a substitute for evangelism. I love marketing, but not as a substitute. It's never going to replace real evangelism. So the the key link between all we've said to the reason why the book is different is when the Holy Spirit 
comes in power. Remember, that's power to witness. He will come. You'll be my witnesses. Pentecost, one-time event. But that experience in all of us, the idea that I can be empowered by the Holy Spirit who would make me a witness for Jesus, Peter stands up when the people say, what is happening? And he says, this is what Joel spoke of. In the last days, I'll pour up my spirit on all flesh. And then he says, this promise is for you and your children and your children's children and as many as the Lord our God will call. In other words, he's saying this is for everybody. And what he does in quoting Joel's prophecies, he links it to the activation of gifts. And now I'm not talking the charismata. You know, you could be a, right. a, a conservative Southern Baptist, read this, and I'm not going to get weird on you. You know, it, it's, uh, yeah. Bas- yeah, it's basically a book that's saying there's more here than what we're being told. And that is that when the spirit is, is when I am completely at a place where I'm saying, Lord, I'm ready to go and I'm available and I'm surrendered. There is a power in that for every believer who says, I want to reach the people around me, but you cannot bypass the power source. It'd be like trying to use a power, power drill without a power cable. You know, it just doesn't work. You can twist that thing. All you want is you're going to be there a while. And that's where I feel we're at. So, um, Again, going back to first century, it will be different um, in in what you read because the focus is different. But I also feel that the stuff that happens to me uh, when I'm church planting is done in that vein, and it's different results that I get. When I planted in the open air in downtown Long Beach um, on the very first day, the story's in the book, but... In the middle of preaching, or lesbian raised her hand and said, what does all this mean for me? And I'm uh, talking this grace and this mercy and Jesus dying on the cross. I'm a lesbian, no disrespect. And, uh, but what, what does that have to do with me? And I, mm-hmm. and I said, well, last time I checked, no one gets a different gospel. Um, it's the same for you as anyone else. But I mean, these are power of God things. I couldn't have done that, but we, we, you know, we, we just keep seeing people come to faith and I know that's a bigger issue and yes she repented of her lifestyle and yes you know she but these are all things that I, I step back and think man I'm glad I'm not doing this on my own anymore because Peyton Jones like I said to that guy on the phone I, I'm not that guy but right. I didn't have to be that guy like that's what I've discovered he does a heavy lifting he shares his his yoke with me and my part's easy and light you know he's doing all the heavy lifting I want to see every believer get over that fear that is so natural. Even Paul says, hey, pray for me for boldness. There's a spiritual something that all of us need, and we're trying to do this on our own, and we don't have to. Yeah, I often say this too, you know, when people ask me why I won't jump into um, some of the hot topic hot button issues that are out there. And there's so many right now you can, where do you even begin? <laughs> right. And I always say that, look, um, I mean, I, I, I'm not usually highly political and highly cultural for one reason. Uh, I've got a unique skill set. I hope as an investigator, that will help people determine if the Bible is reliable. And, and I always say if I, my focus is very narrow, it's to help people see that the Bible is reliable and worth taking seriously. If people believed that the Bible is reliable, and ought to be taken seriously, 
the spirit will do the rest. I mean, the, the, the reality of it is I don't need to worry about those behaviors, those other issues, those, those, those worldview issues that emerge from people who either don't know what the Bible says, don't think it's reliable, or they do know what the Bible says and they think it's reliable, but they don't take it seriously. Those two things have to exist in people's lives in order to see ultimate change, both in behaviors and in attitudes toward everything. And if we could just tell people to see that, that, that they, by the way, once that happens, God's word does the rest. You don't have to. I just want to remove the obstacles that people have built. Mm. So they aren't hearing these two things. They aren't hearing. I don't believe the Bible is reliable and they don't believe it's worth taking seriously. In the end, if I focus on that foundational thing, all the secondary and tertiary things that emerge from bad worldviews will be aligned. We're all yeah. going to end up agreeing on just about everything that's important in terms of how we live yeah. if, in fact, we took the Bible seriously and thought it was reliable. So so for me, that's where I think that that, that apologetics can play a role, Big right? Is it focuses people back on, on what is of ultimate importance, and it helps them not. Now, there's lots of cultural apologists out there, and I'm a senior fellow at Colson Center. What does Colson do? It does a great job of addressing on a daily basis um, stuff that's happening in culture. Uh, my associates, you know, uh, Eric Metaxas and John Stone Street are just great at doing that. But my job Big there, respect there. Yeah. My, re- my responsibility at Colson is to tell, give the foundation that we build on, which is scripture. And why is this reliable and why should yeah. we take it seriously? I want to contribute that small piece. No one's better at doing the job that they do than they are. So I'm not going to repeat that. I'm just going to stay in my lane, basically. But as a church planter, I also knew that what I wanted to do is to produce a people that understood these two things and then could communicate this to the people in their life. You know, why do you believe Christianity is true? Why should I accept that view of sexuality? Why should I? Well, those are secondary issues. Let's go back. First of all, like mm. you said, the gospel is not any different for anybody. But why should I believe that Jesus was really who he said he was and that the gospel of, of Christianity, the gospel of Christ is uniquely different than right. a gospel offered by an alternate system? I mean, Mormons have a gospel of their own. So do Muslims. So does every worldview offers yeah. an answer to the problems that we face. We call this the gospel. And and, and everyone's got an answer to what's 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 hurting. Why is our answer, um, you know, true? So, so I, I think that that's why I see the intersection of our our two uh, bodies of work, and Absolutely. that's why I expose my audience uh, to your book, and and that's that's and I think that you know reaching the unreached and just look for the. Uh, um, the uh, the hat the the fedora that uh, Indiana Jones wears I mean that's a great cover and so I hope that my audience now will see that book as a resource for them as well and I think and conversely I hope that your audience will see forensic faith as a resource yeah, as well. yeah most definitely and you know uh, before we close here um, just just one last thought and that is that you know when you do go out the first thing you're going to need to grab hold of is the stuff that Jim is talking about it's a tool apologetics is you know and the, and especially the way he's putting where case making where you're bringing them through their own evidence that they're observing with their own eyes to this breakthrough and i i think that's right in partnership with the holy spirit and what i love is you know for something you said earlier jim where you said you know uh we, we need to go out and we need to engage and, and you were really bringing that to the forefront. One of the things that, that we learned to do because my first church planning experience where I was leading the church plant was in a Starbucks, like I said, and it was just a discussion group around 
Da Vinci Code, which we all knew was rubbish, you know, but I had 30 the first night, 40 the second night, 50 unbelievers the third night. And it, I didn't want to plan a church, but it just, all these people started coming to faith and, um, they needed to keep asking questions. And so one of my, my, my big passions is what I call synagogue style evangelism. Proclamation is what we do on Sunday mornings. Synagogue styles where we sit and, and even when we turned it into a church, uh, because people were saying, Hey, I, I sung spirit in the sky in the shower by docking the medics. Cause I read that you could worship God, like, you know, sing to him. So did I do okay? Did God like that? I'm like, yeah, man, God totally liked that. But I looked at, at some of the Christians with me and said, Hey, we need, we need to, to maybe get out of Starbucks eventually. Cause these guys need to experience what it is to, to, to praise God. In, in song. And so that's when we took it out. But one thing we did was we went to Ikea, bought coffee tables and set up semicircles so that there was a bunch of small groups, not rows. And what that did was we would worship and we would preach. And then, um, so proclamation style preaching, old school. I was, I was at Lloyd Jones's church for a few years. So I'm, I'm, I'm old school on that. But then we added a, 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 a discussion to it. And, and again, I was like, this is so first century because their church services went on for hours. Apparently they ate and they, and there was discussion and there, I'm sure it looked nothing like ours, but there was interaction. I keep seeing these one another's 32 of them. And I'm like, they weren't just sitting in rows staring at the back of each other's heads. And so no, what no we taught people to do in the service was to handle these questions that you're talking about. You know, it, it literally was hardwired in, into the fabric of the church. Unbelievers, searchers, uh, newcomers loved it. They wanted to stay for hours. It was only the Christians like, gang, gang, wait a second. This is, <laughs> I don't want to come here. This is weird. But you know, what you're saying is so, is yeah. so true, Peyton. I, 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 we just experienced the same thing. When we moved into the home setting, we started up with 50 chairs facing forward. And within about uh, six months, I said, this isn't working. This is not what we <laughs> wanted to do to begin with. And I, I called Frank Viola in, 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 in uh, Florida, and we had a long conversation with Frank and kind of helped to figure out what I needed to do to break that dependency on the, the single teacher up front. And mm. the first thing we did was just change the format of the room physically. And that did really help. But you're right about one thing. If you're going to do that, you know, we would have sometimes we, we I would only prepare about 15 minutes, if that 10 minutes, because I knew someone's going to ask a good question. That's going to rabbit trail into discussions. And so this was very interactive from the very beginning and people loved it. And what was interesting about that was then we go to prayer and then you'd be spending 40 minutes in prayer because people have things they want to pray about. And now they're praying with their family. And we we would start at five o'clock. Uh, in the evening, we would probably get to leave for dinner probably around eight and we'd be at dinner uh, probably for another couple of hours. So people knew that that was a five hour adventure every Saturday night. Mm. And we did that for six years. And, wow. young, you know, it was all young people and their pa- and their and their parents, you know, so they were like um, first year college um, uh, and their parents who would come. And then, of course, of course, you know, we saw great um uh, a thriving kind of vibrant uh, family in that setting. I hated to 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 step out, but I found myself every Sunday, you know, speaking at some church, but not speaking at my church anymore. So I needed to to be realistic about that. But but you're right about that format alone is enough to make the difference altogether. Um, so so that's why I say let's let's and all we did by the way every s- Sunday night 
our midweek uh, uh, meetings were about uh, going line by line through scripture. But our, our, our weekend meetings were about um, apologetics, really That's about rad. making the case. Why is this true? Yeah. So we tried to do both. You have to have kind of a theological underpinning. You can't be uh, biblically uh, literate. But at the same time, we wanted them to be philosophically literate. Yep. And so, so we, we did both of those things. And that was really the thing that was at the hallmark. But again, that's why I say this, these are not, our two books are very different, but these are not competing um, uh, and disjointed um, uh, notions. These are two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. And so I hope people will see it that way. And I'm just glad we've had a chance to expose each other's audience to the work of each other. And so I hope that my audience listening to this at Cold Case Christianity uh, dot com. That's the our our website is uh, that hosts these podcasts is coldcasechristianity.com. And I hope the people who are listening there will now get a chance have been introduced now to Peyton Jones, been introduced to the podcast. All the, all the bumpers on both sides of the podcast will be here. I want our audience to hear about you, so they will take this this mission and remember that it's part of a more a, a broader even uh, evangelism mission that we cannot lose sight of. So let's, let's uh, kind of help our, our, uh, our, our listeners to, to keep that balance between making the case and understanding why we make the case. Absolutely. Well, Hey guys, this has been Peyton Jones and uh, Jay Warner Wallace. And we have been talking about uh, Cold Cake Christianity and Forensic Faith, his latest book. Guys, I encourage you to track with Jim. Um, he is someone I deeply respect. His uh, resources are incredible. Um, Jim is very generous by giving free giveaways. I get his newsletter, so I'm constantly, in fact, that was one of the things. Jim sent an amazing newsletter, and I went, wow, man, that's that's a keeper right there. So I held on to it and I actually reached out to Jim right after and said, Hey man, you know, uh, you have a huge audience. I'm, I'm a smaller, smaller dog than you, but brother, I would love to do something together with you. And, uh, and here we are because we're, we're just trying to see people come to faith and activate believers. So if you want, again, it's cold Christianity. Uh, check out his website. Uh, sorry, <laughs> not cold Christianity. Cold case. Well, if, if it's cold, I'll feel bad if, it's, if it feels cold. <laughs> <laughs> Reaching the reach, you know. That's uh, right. That's, hey, that's right. Yes. Before, it, before we get off, I always ask uh, a question on this podcast, and we've gone a little bit longer because we've done something special. But uh, real right. quick, we do a little bit of a smack talk at the end. Um, it, it's just a little fun thing we do. It's our final question every time. And it, no one ever sees it coming, but people kind of expect it if they know this podcast. Uh, if you... Jim, were to get into a physical fist fight with Josh McDowell, who would? Win? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so there, so from a, just a very very kind of secular perspective, as the atheist I was before. Okay, I would kick his butt. But from a spiritual <laughs> perspective, I would never do that. I would always allow him to beat on me because he's my spiritual father, right? Because I mean, I all of his resources were foundational. By the way, did you guys all know that Josh and um, Sean McDowell are they've rewritten evidence that demands a verdict? So for all of us who you know kind of got saved in in the last twenty years, uh, we've, we've looked at that book. A new version is about to be released. So for, because of that, I would not. Uh, resist. I would let Josh have the upper hand. How's that? I, I, and I totally get that. When it's someone that you respect, it's it's yeah. a tough. I you know I debated. I thought should I pick someone he doesn't know, like <laughs> Alvin Plantinka or 
you know, maybe, no, I don't help. Like, come on, I don't know him personally, but I mean, I mean, we all these are these are giants. Well, I know, people. right? Like, like yeah, my my best friend, I write about him in the book. First guy yeah, to come exactly. to faith. He he's a reformed epistemologist in the school yes. of Alvin Plantinga. So, I, you know, so it, it's tough. And and always, you know, we we run one of two ways. It, the last time I asked this question. Uh, I asked someone about Ed Stetzer and they said, uh, you know, we already, it's happened a couple times and I'll just tell you the score so far is three and five. I won't tell you it's in favor of, but. Oh, that's funny. Uh, so anyways, hey, great. Thanks for having us on. This has been a hardcore church planning. You've been listening to Jay Warner Wallace and Peyton Jones. Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.